Episode 6, How Clinical Decision Support Systems Find Appropriate Patients, with John Feldman from Applied Pathways. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today on the program, I'm speaking with John Feldman from Applied Pathways, which is a clinical decision support system. Definitely listen to this this episode if you are interested in what exactly clinical decision support is precisely, because I know as far as myself goes, I think we all have some sort of vague notion of what is clinical decision support, but we really don't understand exactly where it fits in the patient journey. For example, I was always under the impression that it was something that happened pre-care, you know, that helped prescribers, for example, make prescribing decisions. Turns out not so much. There's also an, an aftercare aspect that intersects with payers, which I didn't really know anything about before. So definitely listen to round out your knowledge of, of what goes on in this very complex space. Here's my big insight, and I have to figure out what to do with this in, in my day job, which is acting as a, a pharmaceutical marketing executive, because there's something here. I know that in, in, some, in some way I'm going to be able to figure out how to use this with some brands, and that is that who clinical decision support really impacts is not necessarily prescribers at the point of prescribing. Who it has the most impact on are care extenders, meaning you know, a, a case manager or a, you know, somebody who is a medical assistant, for example, not necessarily even an, an RN. Because what clinical decision support enables is it, it can be a trigger for these non-clinicians to do something, to collect a, a certain amount of, of information, to, do, to run a certain test, to ask the patient a bunch of questions. And then provide that information to a prescriber so that the prescriber has the information to actually make an accurate prescribing decision. If you think about this, you know, if, if we're working in any sort of space in which we need to identify an appropriate patient, and one of the problems is, is that the information a prescriber needs to realize that that patient is appropriate for whatever care modality or drug or technology or whatever it is we're, we're trying to promote. If one of the, if one of the issues is that the, the prescribers do not have the right information to realize, as I said, that the patient is appropriate for the, the therapy that we're promoting, this will matter. Huh. Something to think about. With that, let's, uh, let's talk to John. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. You have been involved in decision support for, I'm going to say, longer than most. You started out working with what is pre-WebMD and on nurse or call a nurse hotlines and also call centers helping triage nurses assess patient symptoms. Can you talk about that journey a little bit? What did you learn in the early years? Sure. So I worked for a, uh, was a part of the original management team of a company called Informed Access Systems. And we developed really what was the first commercial application of, of a nurse triage for purposes of managed care to trying to uh, limit the uh, unnecessary utilization of emergency room services. And we went from one nurse at the beginning to 1,300 nurses in about four years. And really sort of the central lesson learned from that whole experience was really the, 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 the power of, of continuous quality improvement. 
of instituting through the call centers processes that allowed nurses, irrespective of their clinical backgrounds, to be able to reproducibly do telephonic symptom assessment of patients and arrive at the same outcome uh, each time. And uh, that company, by virtue of what it had developed, was ultimately sold to uh, HBO and then to uh, McKesson. And the, the company is, st- and is still functioning and alive today through uh, McKesson's business. What year was that? We started that company in 1992. What was the imperative in 1992 to standardize care? It, it, it really wasn't so much standardizing care as as much it was it was bringing, I mean, the, I think the philosophy of the informed access systems management team was really sort of an engineering kind of approach to, uh, to what was a, a clinical domain. So that our stated objective was to try to create a highly reproducible process that really imparted the best practices possible to evaluate the symptom onset of a, of, a, of, a, of a caller. What were you doing for that company? What was your role? I was involved with product development, pricing, strategy. Uh, when you're, I was the seventh person into the company. And so it, you, when you're in a, a small company, you wear many hats. And so uh, sales was a part of it as well. And so you're trucking along fine. Your, your business experience is tremendous growth. I mean, going from two nurses to 1,300 is gigantic. Why did you decide, hmm, I'm going to leave this place and strike out on my own? After the acquisition by HBO, um, which has a fairly notorious background that people can look into if they want to know it, but uh, I became increasingly uncomfortable with the management team and decided that that was not a place that I would be con- comfortable continuing to work. So so I left uh, right before the uh, McKesson acquisition. That's a pretty bold move, you know? So you've got this very successful company that you you really must have felt like you had a hand in in founding since you were there right from the very beginning. And you just say, bye. And now you're sitting around in your house. Did you know before you left that you were going to start your own company? Or did you just sort of leave and can hatch this plan? There was an intervening couple of positions there. So, I mean, I, I, I did leave without any. I left fairly spontaneously. I, um, I, I, I resigned a couple of days after going to one of the big management powwows in, uh, in Atlanta. But uh, I, I moved right over to a, a company called Care Insight, which was a company founded by Marty Wygod. And Care Insight was the company that uh, ultimately merged with WebMD and, and the Care Insight management team became the surviving management team for WebMD. So I spent uh, about five years in, in that environment. When was the moment when you said to yourself, you know what, I'm cut out to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to do my own thing. I had waited really my entire career. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had spent a lot of time and effort in small companies, usually venture-based companies, and always wanted to pursue an opportunity if I thought I had an idea that had sufficient merit to warrant the uh, the, the risk in capital and, and just personal risk. Uh, so after the uh, after WebMD, I felt as though I had learned enough from a management perspective, from a product management perspective, and, and had learned enough about the business of, uh, of healthcare that, uh, you know, I, I, I'd learned how to, I thought, commercialize new ideas because I'd done that enough. And so that was really sort of the impetus for me to start to uh, to move forward. Well, let me ask you this: hindsight being twenty twenty, 
did you know did you know as much as you th- you thought you did I, I'd love to say some lessons that I'd learned were reinforced <laughs> in the extreme you know how long decision cycles take how long it takes you to uh, take a new idea and to get somebody else in healthcare particularly to buy off on it what this company does applied pathways does is, is pretty abstract stuff and so it took us a long time to get somebody to have the light go on and say, yeah, I'd buy that. And so that was something that I really hadn't expected it to take that long, but uh, but that was certainly brought home. And how, how did you go about founding Applied Pathways? Did you go it alone or did you have partners? Or It began really with my seeking out um, the first hire who was going to be my chief technology officer. I went through about a dozen candidates. I spent over a year looking for the right guy. I knew that I needed somebody with deep EMR experience and also deep client side, usability side, uh, um, a development expertise. And uh, so I went through a number of, uh, of candidates and finally found one guy. We had, uh, by our guests, is some 16 to 20 meals together over several months to figure out if we were going to be compatible. So for me, the first hire was really the essential hire. But as a company, I've, I've, I've seen what has happened in some of my prior experiences with other companies where management missed their numbers and got canned by the venture capitalists. I didn't want to go that route. So we have uh, self-financed the company, so we're completely bootstrapped. I uh, represent the preponderance of the invested money. My chief operating officer also has some money in the business. Wow. So during this whole time that you were looking for your, you know, the technology officer, as you said, you were thinking to yourself, wow, I'm going to fund this. I'm going to pay this guy's salary. Right. That's some confidence. Or, 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 or as my, my, my employees will tell you that my, uh, my, my optimism borders on the psychosis. So uh. <laughs> I don't think you can be an entrepreneur and not have uh, an, an unprecedented level of, of optimism. Uh, goes with the goes with the territory, I think. Yeah. So let's talk about applied pathways a little bit. So your core product is a clinical decision support tool. What, you know, at its very most fundamental level, what is clinical decision support? Well, that's a good question because that's a that's a term that has a, a lot of blurred meaning uh, in healthcare right now. I mean, clinical decision support really spans a sort of a continuum of, of ideas. On one end of the continuum, it's data analytics, looking at, uh, you know, for large enterprises like health systems to understand where they're at variance with key performance indicators. So that's the, the data and analytics side of it. Then uh, decision support also incorporate, you know, turning that data into knowledge. I mean, so so now that you know that you're not performing against a particular metric, how do you uh, how do you fix that? So that begins that begins where we as a company begin to uh, uh, take place is, is that what we are is a uh, is how you deliver that knowledge. So there are people who, you know, read the guidelines or produce the guidelines and produce that knowledge, if you will. And then they turn and then what they use our technology to turn that knowledge into an executable algorithm that can be integrated into uh, into an electronic medical record or any kind of clinical information system. So the, the, the realm of clinical decision support that we work in is engineering clinical process improvement. Let me just kind of take this step by step. So first of all, you need 
a customer, and by customer, I'm assuming that you you mean an integrated delivery network or some sort of practice. Am I right there? Yeah, the technology, I don't want to get terribly technical because it's not interesting, but our clients are typically not the health system. Our clients are typically the companies or the organizations that produce the intellectual property. So the Elsevier's or the uh, uh, McKesson's or the Milliman's of the world, these are the organizations that have the content, or academic medical centers. I mean, they, you know, they have their particular brands of medicine and they believe that what they have is like Mayo Clinic their brand of, of approach and so what our technology does is allows them to instantiate their intellectual property their processes their know-how their best practices into the software so that they can then syndicate it into other organizations. That's what we do. I, I just want to make sure that that I understand this. You're not working directly with an integrated delivery network or someone who's directly providing care. What you're doing is validating a standard of care. What we've done is is we marry our con our technology with other people's intellectual property. So we're think of us as kind of the intel inside. What our system does is it allows an organization to develop to take that flat file guideline and turn it into clinical rules. And then what we've got is a whole methodology in place for different roles, different permissions for different people to turn to build and manage the life cycle. I mean, any kind of clinical decision support tool needs to has a, a, an obligation to be kept current. And so we call that curation of the of the clinical content. So we are purely the technology. We don't dwell in the world of the content. That's the purview of our clients. And so we stay content neutral. So what would happen would be, you know, Mayo Clinic or, or somebody who is um, developing a guideline or mm -hmm. promoting a guideline. Mm -hmm. They come to you and they say, make my guideline actionable. I want to go to a hospital and say, I, I don't want to just give you my guideline. I want to give you a way to implement it. Right, right. And so, yeah, so I mean, everybody know everybody has guidelines laying around on shelves, but nobody ever looks at them. And so how do you impart that process? How do you make it an executable rule set? A, uh, you know, how do you make it machine readable? How do you make it interrogate an electronic medical record so that you need to uh, do a particular intervention um, at, a per at, a per at a particular point in time? That you know, one thing that I never realized, so basically hospitals or IDNs or, you know, provider organizations around the country are purchasing standard of care packages, if you will, from organizations, like you said, like Elsevier or mm -hmm. Mayo. Mm -hmm. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. And do they purchase all disease categories or do I am I filling up my shopping cart like I would like the diabetes module from Elsevier and I would like the, you know, other module from the heart failure module from somebody else or do you know, they I tend to buy like a gigantic you know, no, one stop shop. Domain expertise in healthcare tends to be within the medical specialty societies. And so the medical specialty societies are, are similarly interested in making sure that their guidelines are propagated. So the, the world of, uh, of clinical guidelines can be pretty complicated. So the American College of Radiology, for instance, uh, offers up the best practice guidelines for imaging studies. A A American College of Cardiology. Now, you know, you know, you know, different groups of uh, different companies with publishing resources like Elsevier or Provation, Walters Kluwer, they, they have editors, too, and they can read the same guidelines and produce the same kind of tool. So so, you know, I think that I, I think what you'll find in the market is 
that health systems will buy from a whole variety of different, and maybe even buy duplicative uh, ones. You know, there. In fact, in Minnesota, just as an FYI, there's a group called the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement, and uh, all of the payers and providers in Minnesota agree that those are the guidelines they'll adhere to. And so uh, it is uh, locally, organically grown content, but everybody, including Mayo Clinic, says they'll, they'll follow them. And they're paid accordingly. They have to prove that they've complied with those guidelines. Wow. So, so if you want to change the standard of care in Minnesota, you pretty much have to go to that organization. Yeah. And, and they, they have the editorial resources to look at the content, uh, you know, the evidence-based guidelines. You know, they look at the guidelines to see if they have in, in, in any introduced bias. And, and they, they, you know, they weigh that into their consideration. They weigh the, the relative merit of the evidence base and score it. And, uh, and then they make these available to all of the providers and payers in the, uh, in the state. What percentage of, I don't know what you'd even call it, disease categories or, th- or therapeutic categories are, are covered by these guidelines? I mean, in other words, if I go in there with, say, for example, multiple sclerosis, which doesn't seem like anybody agrees on any anything. You know, how are are all disease states covered? I think I mean, I think that you will find that there is be teams of specialists who work on guidelines, everything from birth to death, actually from from pre-birth to uh, and and for virtually every disease state that, you know, that I mean, this is the nature of of, of Western medicine is, is that, it, you know, it's evidence based. And so where there's literature that allows you to infer what the best practice is. There will be people who are, you know, trying to apply the science. And so there might be rare forms of cancer or something really, you know, esoteric congenital anomalies that don't have ICD-9 codes or ICD-10 codes that are so rarefied that there is no agreed upon treatment protocol, but you're dealing way outside the main mainstream of, of normalcy there. So would you say that your average health system out there for almost every condition that exists probably has some standard of care in place? Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. And that and that the nature of value based reimbursement is really forcing health systems hands to to do this because ultimately they have to understand their costs. If they're going to thrive in an environment where there's finite reimbursement, they have to be as resource efficient as they can uh, against defined reimbursement and so that they don't want to do two CAT scans if they don't need to. And so that that what they're really beginning to look at, and this is why they're looking to the domain experts like the medical specialty societies or publishers who have produced clinical guidelines or, you know, the academic medical centers who might be the motherships of their IDNs. Uh, they're looking to these organizations for that intellectual leadership to define the best practice. Now, that's part of it. I mean, the, the evidence base is a part of it, but their workflow, I would argue, also constitutes a component of what is their best practice. So if they're working in nurse teams or care teams, who gets a clinical alert in the event that something happens, you know, with respect to the, uh, you know, a, a rule fires for an EMR? You know, so configuring the workflow within a practice is as important, I think, in instantiating that in what might be, you know, our technology or something like our technology is is, is as important as, as the evidence base. Let's talk about that for a sec, just where the rubber meets the road and, and those alerts actually start popping up. We've So what we, we have in play here is we've got Academy of X disease. So, you know, some um, thought leader who has come up with what the guideline is for that particular therapeutic category, that disease category. They come to you guys and they say, Make this make this actionable. Put put this embed this in some technology so that practices can actually make sure that doctors, you know, providers who are caring for patients have the right information at the right time. And then 
where the disconnect is in my head is that obviously, as you just mentioned, every health system has a different EMR. Every health system has a different way of working. Even within some health systems, we run across this all the time. You know, you've got ambulatory care facilities that are connected with the IDN, you know, the health system that have a different EHR than the hospital. You know, it's it's right. really complicated. It, so it certainly is, yeah. Is that the problem that applied pathway solves? It was, I don't say, I wouldn't say that we solve the problem, but we have designed and engineered a solution that is a solution to the problem. <laughs> if, ah. if that's not a nuanced answer, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, because there are closed EMRs and there are open EMRs. And so that where there are closed EMRs, um, you know, not friendly to uh, data level integration, you still have fundamental problems. But, uh, but the, the idea behind our technology was to enable organizations to develop EMR agnostic clinical decision support tools. So our technology is a rules modeling environment. So um, that's a, really, it's a, it's a, think of it almost as a programming language that's designed to take all of the complexity of software engineering uh, out of it and allow the clinicians. It's, I mean, clinical decision support is their purview. So allow them to actually model the rules without having to know how to program. And then, and then every, it's an object-oriented environment, seeing that every clinical concept you create with our technology is a, is a rule that has de defined and discrete meaning. And that rule can then be integrated um, at a data level through our technology. Through our, uh, we have a specialized rules engine that allows us to extract data out of the EMR, process that data, and then return a value or an alert or, or some sort of message back to the EMR. And... Um, so we, we function external to the EMR or any other clinical information system. We could just as easily interact with a, a data registry for diabetes or a, um, we have a, a client who models their, their population health management uh, gap analysis algorithms in our technology. So there's a, there's a whole variety of different kinds of use cases. If you really think of us in the, in the, in, in the broadest sense as a, as a programming language, uh, we do a lot of interesting work in the uh, uh, pharmaceutical area where we are um, interrogating uh, electronic medical records to target patients for uh, highly uh, targeted oncology therapies, for instance. So there's a lot of different kinds of use cases, whether they're mobile solutions, whether they're integrated EMR solutions, whether they're call center kinds of applications or, or um, anything of that ilk. You can do an awful lot with our technology. Let me just kind of walk through the process so that, that um, I can kind of pull it all together in my head. A health system goes out and they hire some thought leader. So they're not hiring you. The health system says, we need to standardize our diabetes care, for example. So we're going to hire the you know, thought leadership in, in diabetes because they have a standard of care which is well-proven in the industry and we want it. So they hire that society. Then you come kind of bundled with that solution. Yeah, I'll give you a commercial example. So our largest client is McKesson. And uh, they have a, a a product called Interqual. And are you familiar with Interqual? I am not. Okay. What those are? They are utilization management criteria, and these are evidence based guidelines that are used by payers and by health systems to evaluate episodes of care and to see whether that the 
or not that the care that was delivered was appropriate and therefore reimbursable. So uh, a, 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 an interqual criteria for, uh, for um, 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 radiation therapy would say, if you, if you got proton beam therapy for acne, that is clearly outside the boundaries of appropriate care. So the health system would not get paid by the insurer because the insurer would say, see, this is outside of boundaries. And so the interqual criteria are kind of the Rosetta Stone, if you will, between the uh, the payer and the provider. These are the agreed upon evidence-based criteria that um, will say to a, a payer, we should pay, or to a provider, if we do it, we will or we won't get paid. So, so there's enormous editorial resource that goes into these interqual criteria because they there are thousands of these rules and uh, are these guidelines, and they are in, in every health system in almost every payer in the country. McKesson makes those criteria available in our technology over the web to their clients so their clients can then modify the rules to reflect their local um, medical policy uh, contract issues. Is that something that the payer um, hires McKesson and then basically if a payer is using that service they make everybody who wants to bill them use that service yeah so let me so so mckesson develops the content it's in our technology and then it's all, our technology is all cloud based so then the clients who are the insurers or the big idns have access to those rules those uh, uh those interqual criteria and they can choose to use them how they will if i work in a department in in a hospital you know so say i'm in that endocrinology group associated with with the hospital is it up to me to realize that these you know what's the name of the system qualcomm interqual interqual so is it up to me to to realize that these interqual guidelines are available and then i decide if i want to use them or not or is this usually a mandate coming from above someplace in the hospital that, you know, there's a memo that sent, you will use these criteria. I would say that for, you know, probably 80% of care, because most physicians don't stray that broadly from uh, the guidelines, you know, for, from uh, from what is normal routine care in terms, you know, by disease state or whatever, that, that let me, I'll give you an example of when a rule might come, when a criteria might come into play. Let's say that you have a patient who you need to discharge from the hospital because they've been hospitalized. Uh, the criteria would come into effect when you want to have that patient stay an extra day. Or if that patient needs to be discharged, are they going to go into a skilled nursing facility or uh, or, or what are the criteria that would mean that they need to stay in the hospital as opposed to going to a uh, to a lower level of care? So, or uh, you know, an, an alternative would be: uh, I have a patient with Crohn's disease, and they have uh, failed to respond to traditional therapy. Can I put them on Remicade? Uh, you know, what are the what criteria do they need to have so that I get an approval for for a biologic? And so, those would be the kinds of so these criteria would be used when a physician is going to make a decision about uh, utilizing uh, in insurance resources. Are, you know, for example, prior off criteria, are, are, are they all embedded into the system? So, you know, a, a doctor can know that if they write Remicade or something else, some other branded drug over a 
generic um, standard of care that they can rest assured that the patient's not going to get a bill for thousands of dollars? Congratulations. You're, you've just put your finger on the future of, of healthcare utilization management is, is that these rules, these interqual criteria or, or, their, or their competitors will, um, you know, they're trying to change their paradigm from what used to be a retrospective model where it was, you know, denying payment. Now they're going to move them into a prior authorization model. Yeah. And so what that's, what is that going to look like? That the doctor's sitting there and they've got their tablet and it's open to their, you know, EHR system and the doctors thinking to themselves, wow, you know, Remicade would be great for this patient or, you know, what have you. They click on the, the, the button and a box pops up and says, hey, you know, does the patient meet the following criteria? Like click, yeah, click yes, if so. And then the prior off is handled electronically or how does that work? The, the rules for prior authorization will wind up being hidden to them. Uh, they'll work underneath the, uh, the computer physician order entry. So if you're familiar with CPOE, that's uh, where, you know, they order up a, you know, a test or a treatment or, a, 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 you know, or, or prescribing behavior that, you know, those things, um, the, the rules will exist underneath and the rules engines, all that processing will be done without the, uh, without the physician invoking them specifically, be done automatically. The point of this whole thing is to make sure that the physicians are clear on what the proven, what the evidence-based medicine would suggest the best treatment pathway is at moments of decision throughout the, the patient journey. Certainly right. And, and in the event that you have an omission, then to be able to alert if you need to correct a behavior that wasn't done. And, you know, I, I would tell you that I don't think that clinical decision support is going to be so impactful in the immediate term on the uh, on the physician per se, and particularly not on the specialists who already know their domain so well. But I think that 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 the payment pressures um, on the health systems are going, we're going to see a lot of, sort of vertical delegation of care and that we're going to see lower level clinicians doing more and more work. And, uh, and so the, where I see clinical decision support really beginning to, uh, or, or clinical process improvement, whatever we want to call it, that uh, imparting reproducible process so that you have a governable um, outcome is, is what I see the real opportunity for our business um, in terms of uh, the clinical setting. Basically, what would happen would be that by being able to rely on a kind of a step-by-step -step backbone that, you know, treatment pathway that you're providing, a non-prescriber, you know, a non-MD or maybe not even a, an RN um, or a PA, you know, someone without a, necessarily a medical degree can escort the patient through what would be a, you know, a proven standard of care. Correct. And, and, you know, clinical decision support can even be so rudimentary as just data gathering. Are you capturing the right information? Are you actually getting the, the appropriate information that you need for a particular patient with a diagnosis? So there's, maybe their medical family history is of particular pertinence so that you're capturing everything that you, you need to do to be able to deliver the most appropriate care. How does this impact quick innovation? So, for example, say that there is a new drug that's developed or, or, or a new treatment modality. And as a prescriber, I feel that this is best for my particular patient, but it's not currently known to or espoused by or it's somewhere in the middle of a of an evaluation process by these either the thought leadership in that particular specialty or it hasn't been 
uh, implemented by Interqual? You know, I'm imagining that it's not like something gets submitted to Interqual and tomorrow it's it's been rolled out. Sure. No, no, no. Well, I, well, innovation is. I, 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 this is an interesting thing. I, you know, I, I, I fall back on Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. He, he, he says and makes it quite clear that uh, innovation, the, the, the other side of the coin of innovation, is resource allocation. And I think that's absolutely true in, uh, in uh, where you're dealing with healthcare IT. Is that uh, institutes of medicine define quality in medicine as that which represents the most current knowledge base in medicine. And uh, or something along those lines, but that current medical um, evidence base and quality are are indistinguishable, and so that how do you take a uh, and this is this is ultimately a software the, the the real issue I would tell you that we've attempted to solve with our business is that how do you instantiate knowledge into software? I mean, software is simply a, a medium in which you store the knowledge, but to stay abreast of a highly dynamic knowledge base like uh, evidence based medicine. There's constant changes, and if you've ever worked in uh, in healthcare or healthcare IT, recognizing that a product requirements document is an enormously complicated document to write and to hand over the engineers. Hopefully, they get it right. It doesn't often happen. So that turning knowledge into software is a is a problem that is, uh, I think, pandemic. And that if you can't get and, and within health systems or publishers, any large enterprise, it's always a battle for resources when you need to make updates with engineers. And so the the thing that we've tried to address with our technology is to take the high priest of IT. Uh, my joke is that we're sort of the Protestant Reformation for um, for uh, for uh, healthcare IT. Is is that what we allow are the domain experts, the clinicians, to be able to work directly with the technology to model the rules uh, with having to work through IT without having to create that product requirements document. So technology represents an order of magnitude in terms of the speed with which you can instantiate the uh, the knowledge and then there is a whole framework in which this content or the rules can be uh, curated so that keeping it current with contemporary medicine uh, which is the big business challenge for these systems is is what our system does and so what we call uh, our technology is clinical knowledge management and it is acknowledged by organizations such as the uh, advisory board company as one of the core competences necessary for uh, organizations to thrive under accountable care. So we're kind of a, a complement to knowledge, to, to content management, which is sort of managing flat file content like images and documents. We deal in the world of, of hierarchical or three-dimensional content, which are more expert systems or knowledge bases. Basically, what that all boils down to is that if I am um, a prescriber, uh, you know, a physician or a thought leader within my own institution, and I would like to do things my way, I can override your system and make the clinical pathway the way that suits me. Right, because um, a, a part of it is that the, you know, you know, I mean, now, an evidence-based guideline for asthma won't change much between Minnesota and Mississippi, but the workflow in different institutions or different practices is certainly going to change. And, uh, or, you know, and maybe that you have different EMRs in an affiliated network of health systems where you're trying to behave as a contracting entity. You may, you, you need, you have an organ, you have a network of, of heterogeneous electronic medical records. If you're attempting to standardize practice across those institutions, you need to have the ability to publish and operate those clinical guidelines in uh, across all of those different systems. And so that, that's, that's, uh, 
another part of the system problem that we were trying to solve with this. Interesting. So nobody, you know, if if a hospital, um, you know, or or a, a system of care begins to use a solution that embeds your technology, it's not like they're suddenly going to be locked into a particular treatment pathway. They do have the flexibility to amend it to meet their own beliefs or, or needs. Absolutely right. In fact, there, a whole part of our methodology allows review, comment, approval by each organization. So we were kind of built around the idea of a, a kind of an iTunes for clinical decision support, if that doesn't sound hokey. But recognizing that evidence-based guidelines really represent a template. They don't typically represent what I would characterize as intellectual property. Most of the academic medical centers exist to see part of their missions is to propagate best practices. And so we built the technology with the idea of, uh, of a cloud-based exchange in which organizations can push and pull clinical decision support artifacts and uh, pull them down and make modifications to them if need be. That, that's an implicit part of the technology, but particularly around the ideas of workflow and, and data level integration. But uh, the, I, I think that there is a, a strong belief within the informatics and the, and the the clinical world that there really should only be uh, you know one set of clinical guidelines for uh, uh, for different disease states or treatments uh, and that that they shouldn't have to be modified um, there's a, an effort through uh, uh, sponsored by a gentleman named uh, Blackford Middleton out of Vanderbilt that is called the Clinical Decision Support Consortium, which has been trying to build consensus around these uh, uh, clinical decision support templates with the hope that modification wouldn't be necessary because the the, the belief of that consortium is, is that that is a, a rate-limiting step to allow that modification or to encourage that modification, that we could vastly improve the delivery of care if, if people could bypass that step. Do you so, believe that? I, I think it kind of flies in the face of the culture of American medicine. That uh, and and, the, and you also have. So I think there's been a strong regional bias towards wanting to review and touch the algorithms to make sure that they or the guidelines to make sure that they impart what are local standards of care. But um, but I think that it, as a, as a uh, general premise, it's good. I think that the other issue is is that I think uh, uh, lots of clinicians would say that. Guidelines are generalized statements and are not specific to patients, and so you know, so that they need further modification for issues like comorbidities. I think one of the weaknesses in guidelines is that many of them don't contemplate complex dis uh, uh, morbidities, comorbidities. Relative to stakeholders who are in the periphery of, of this operation, you know, for example, pharma, or you know, maybe even an insurance company or a care management organization. What impact does what you're doing have on them? For example, if I'm on a pharmaceutical brand team or mm -hmm. I work in a managed market group at a, at a pharmaceutical company, what do you think I need to know about what you're doing? How is it going to impact me? I think in the, in the pharma world, I think that what we're seeing is uh, increasing uh, development of infusion-based therapies that are uh, expensive on a per-case basis. And uh, in our experience that uh, a, a systematically identifying appropriate patients for highly targeted interventions is a uh, is is often a challenge that traditional detailing may not be the uh, the appropriate approach and so something that we can do in this space is uh, and, and are doing it in this space are, are building um, algorithms that are based on NCCN guidelines for instance that analyze patient records 
we can set them up even to be real-time alerts or do this on a batch process. That uh, So on a batch process, for instance, we take uh, what are HL7 messages, ADT messages, that allow us to look at each individual patient record overnight. Uh, we install our technology, our rules engine behind the firewall of the group practice, and uh, it analyzes each individual patient profile and then creates what is in the work list uh, in, in the, in the uh, um, chart review function in the morning within the group practices are clinical alerts that says this patient is a potentially a candidate for a given intervention. So what this solution allows us to do is to systematize uh, identifying patients who could satisfy, you know, particular interventions or clinical trials or anything of that ilk without having to go through a manual chart review. So that I, I think that has a, a profound implication for organizations that are struggling with how to reach patients that uh, have, very, you know, highly uh, specific disease states. What about brands that may not be quite so highly niched? You know, like, in general, why do I, how is what you are doing going to impact my brand? You know, so say I've got some random, you know, osteoporosis product or diabetes product, or it's a brand that's in a generic category. How is what you're doing and what's going on in the industry right now, how, how is that going to affect me? The existence of our, of our technology, and if, if you accept that it is broadly propagated in the industry, if, and if it's not our technology, it will be something along these lines, that is going to formalize the uh, what are appropriate behaviors, again, coming back to this concept of best practices, that these formalized appropriate best practices are going to wind up impacting physician prescribing behavior because physicians will wind up either not being able to prescribe something off formulary or off brand, but uh, but I think or they'll have to go through some sort of appeals process. But I think that the uh, implication of rules based process management is going to control the ability of clinicians to to prescribe. If I'm a pharmaceutical brand and I would like to increase my market share within a particular health system, the way to go is not necessarily to, to release a horde of sales reps onto the prescribing floor. The best way to do it might be to go upstairs, find a you know a decision maker who's responsible for the the clinical decision support, and influence them. Exactly. So if you have a new therapy that is uh, is is a, a deemed a, you know appropriate, the the best way to get the adoption of that new therapy would be to be able to fire an alert to a clinician uh, that this candidate this patient could be a candidate for a particular intervention. Typically. Who is that within, you know, a given health system? Who is responsible for for that kind of decision? I think that that world is going to become increasingly complicated because I think you're going to wind up seeing really the blending of evidence-based and actuarial expertises that there's a, a financial element in, in inevitably to healthcare decisions and and I think that that we're going to increasingly see that financial interest more and more front and center in, in, in clinical decision support processes. And so I think you're going to wind up, therefore, having committees that both represent both clinical interests and financial interests in deciding. I mean, the akin, the, I think the analogy is the P&T committees for PBMs. Um, you know, what is therapeutically workable and uh, what makes sense financially? I think we're going to see that kind of decision-making body evolve in these health 
healthcare system. So John, if someone would like to get a hold of you, ask you some more questions or learn more about Applied Pathways, how do they do that? They can certainly go to our website. Our contact information is there. It's appliedpathways.com. And they can reach out to just come through the contact and uh, our phone number is there and uh, we will be eager to follow up with people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, the, the very interesting conversation today. Stacey, thank you so very much. It was really a pleasure. As always, this episode was sponsored by Franklin Healthcom online at franklinhc.com. Reach us at info at franklinhc.com. By the way, that's Franklin with a Y, F-R-A-N-K-L-Y-N-H-C.com. This episode is available on iTunes. And if you go over to Relentless Health Value on iTunes, you can subscribe. Also, if you enjoyed what you heard, would be much obliged if you would leave a rating or a review. You can also download the episodes at our website, RelentlessHealthValue.com. The show notes uh, to this episode, which are available at RelentlessHealthValue.com slash six You can get the links to AppliedPathways.com, which is John Feldman's company, and the contact information, which he mentioned. Thank you so much. See you next Thursday.